And that happens most of the time. I leave a note for my wife on the dining room table and um, I don't have to worry that she'll misunderstand what I'm saying. She understands what I say most of the time, almost all the time. Uh, and that's true in all sorts of other contexts for us. If that's true of us, how much more God? Why is it that we can effectively communicate and God, who is the most effective communicator of all, why could he not um, effectively communicate? Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. How did figures like reformers like Martin Luther understand the doctrine of Scripture? And is Scripture itself clear? Uh, is it a type of text that provides uh, to us a, me a message, a revelation from God himself that can be understood? Well, these are tough questions, especially given some of the challenges in the 21st century to the to attributes like the clarity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, even uh, to introduce some church history here, even the way some have uh, interpreted or misinterpreted uh, some of the Reformers and how they understood the doctrine of Scripture. And that's why I am very glad to have a friend with me, uh, but also a scholar and a principal, and that is Mark Thompson. He's the principal of Moore Theological College, where he is the head of uh, the Department of Theology, Philosophy, and Ethics. He has taught doctrine since 1991, and his, his research interests are broad, including everything from the doctrine of Scripture to Christ to justification by faith to Martin Luther and the Reformation. He's the author and editor of several books, some of which our listeners may be very familiar with. Uh, for example, his book, A Clear and Present Word, The Clarity of Scripture, and uh, a more recent book, that Mark has edited called Celebrating the Reformation, Its Legacy and Continuing Relevance. Mark, it is it is so great to have you on the Creative Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Matthew. It's great to talk with you. Now, Mark, you are a theologian at heart. Uh, that is certainly evident from your many writings, uh, the many chapters you've contributed to books over the years. Uh, one, I think I, I'm right in saying that uh, you're even a systematic theologian, and yet you also see biblical theology and historical theology as essential to that task. That has come out in uh, many of your writings. You, you write on theology, but then you also incorporate uh, biblical theology and historical theology. Now, out of all of these, uh, can we say one was your first love early on, and, and maybe in what ways have... Uh, have, have these other disciplines like biblical theology and historical theology, how have they been key to the task of systematics? Well, thank you. I, I think it's pretty simple for me that biblical theology is uh, my first love. I still remember the time I heard uh, an Archbishop of Sydney, a man named Donald Robinson, the man who stands behind the more popular works of uh, Graham Goldsworthy, 
in the area of biblical theology. Uh, Donald Robinson preaching on um, Psalm 2, and he began in Acts 4, and then started moving backwards to, to Psalm 2 and asked the question, now, what made them put together the Christ and Psalm 2? And with that one question, he began to open up for me the whole world of how the Bible is coherent and united and has a message, a single message to come to the world from God. Uh, and it was exciting. I remember the youth group being electrified. Um, and uh, that's certainly a first love. And if theology really is at its heart, talk about God and everything else in relation to God, then what God himself has to say in his word has got to be central. And the other disciplines, the, the disciplines of historical theology, philosophical uh, theology, are, uh, if you like, handmaidens. I see systematic theology as a mode of reading the Bible. That is, it's, it's not something separate from biblical study. It is actually a, an encouragement to see the Bible as a whole, fitting together. It's reading the Bible, aware of its connections, aware of its coherence, and aware of its proportions. And so historical theology is a great handmaiden because you have these conversation partners who help you to look harder and more carefully at the text. And uh, they've been reading the Bible before. None of us reads the Bible as if we're the only people who've ever done it or the first people who've ever done it. And to learn from those who've read the, the, the same Bible uh, before you is a great joy and being willing to learn from them and being changed in your thinking by them is an act of Christian humility, uh, it seems to me. So historical theology is a great handmaiden. Philosophical theology encourages us to think hard about how we express what we are saying and make sure that what we say is coherent and logical and sensible. And uh, so it's a great handmaiden in that particular way. But at the core is the Bible, the word that God speaks to us, and it seems to me that good systematics is uh, has the Bible in the foreground, not in the background. Well said. And when I have read some of your works in the past or, or we have had conversations, it's clear that uh, systematics uh, does just that in your own writings. Uh, I think of your book, clear, the, A Clear and Present Word. Uh, which is uh, in Carson's series, uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology, in which uh, you see your, your first love come out there, biblical theology, and, and how you present the clarity of God's Word from across the canon. And yet at the same time, you move from uh, biblical theology into systematic theology and back again uh, to biblical theology as you then uh, you've called it here a, a mode of reading the Bible. Uh, I, I like that phrase because it, it shows us that uh, this isn't just some, some foreign discipline to the Bible, but uh, this is moving from the Bible's narrative to uh, thinking and interpreting and exegeting Scripture theologically. Now, when I look at uh, some of your early studies, you've mentioned biblical theology being your first love. Uh, it didn't take long to until you... Uh, camped out in historical theology as well. Uh, out of your studies at Oxford University came uh, your published dissertation, uh, A Sure Ground on Which to Stand, the Relation of Authority and Interpreted, Interpretive Method in Luther's Approach 
to Scripture. And this is uh, published today in the, the Paternoster series uh, in, in Studies in Christian History and, and Thought. Uh, at the beginning of that work, you make a very fascinating claim. Uh, you argue there that much of the, the 20th century Luther scholarship has misread Luther on the doctrine of Scripture, and you say that due to this is due to the pressure of modern theological, philosophical, and even ecclesiastical concerns. Uh, would you explain some of this? Because uh, you've you've talked already about how uh, philosophy or historical theology these are meant to be handmaidens, and yet here uh, there are examples in the modern era of using those tools in in a way that uh, is illegitimate. How, how does how does that work itself out in, in that uh, early work you wrote? Well, when I uh, decided to, uh, or when I was encouraged to go and do some doctoral study, it seemed to me the area I wanted to work on was the doctrine of Scripture. And thinking about the doctrine of Scripture and its place today, and because um, fundamentally one of my basic convictions is that theology is done for the benefit of God's people and the glory of God's name. Uh, it's not playing to the gallery. We don't... It, we, the academy is meant to serve the church, not the academy serving itself. So I wanted to do something that would be helpful to God's people, that would help to clarify exactly the position that God's word uh, plays within the life of God's people, and how the way we use the Bible is related to what we think of the Bible. That's the relation of authority and interpretive method. So once I'd uh, worked out that's the area that I wanted to study, Luther was an obvious person because of his great uh, uh, stand at the Diet of Worms, etc. But as I kept reading uh, 20th century scholarship on Luther, again and again I read, well, Luther didn't really think the Bible was the word of God. Luther thought only Christ was the word of God. And you could almost see the Bartian lenses mm. through which Luther was being read. And uh, this served particular theological interests of distancing um, the word of God from the text of Scripture and being able to say, well, this part really isn't the word of God. It served certain ecclesiastical interests as people wanted to move away from what uh, the Bible was saying to be able to be more connected to contemporary the, um, society or whatever it might be, whatever the reasons were. But uh, again and again, I found um, books that were telling me that Luther was the prototypical historical critic. He didn't really believe uh, that we were bound by what God has written. And that just jarred with me because it didn't seem like the Luther that I'd read uh, as an undergraduate, having read a, a fair bit of primary material in Luther, our course requires you to do that. And uh, so I decided to investigate that further. There were exceptions, of course, great people like Bob Kolb and others who, um, uh, and uh, Mark Roy and others who who, who had all, um, sorry, Michael Roy, I think, um, who had published in this area and who had said that, no, clearly Luther believed the Bible is the word of God. He never worshipped it. Uh, it's not as if the Bible becomes God, uh, but the Bible is the word of God, and how you treat the Bible is how you treat God. And so um, I was encouraged by them to think further. And in my research, uh, there were some interesting discoveries. One of the discoveries was to, uh, to see the way in which um, Bart 
misread a piece of Luther and built an entire uh, section of his dogmatics around the claim that Luther believed that the Bible holds God's word, that it contains God's word. When actually, when you look at the context of the statement, Luther is talking about how the Christian soul in the midst of anguish takes hold of God's word. So that misunderstanding, which upon which Luther had built page, uh, sorry, Barton built page upon page of argument that the Bible is indirectly the word of God and not directly the word of God, um, had misled much modern Luther scholarship, it seemed to me. It's interesting, isn't it, how uh, one's, whether it's theology or history, uh, they influence one another. So for Bart, uh, as you're saying, uh, his reading of Luther or misreading of Luther here uh, is leading him to find support for his own position. Uh, but this is a, is a test case of, of sorts in which we're, we're shown how... Uh, our reading of history, our reading of historical figures can have huge consequences one way or the other for our own theology or, or vice versa. Now, Mark, as you look back, uh, since, since you first wrote that, that book early on, do you think things have changed? Uh, is this still a very uh, – is this a majority view in Luther's scholarship or has there been a push against it in recent scholarship? Um, I, as I read, I don't read as much Luther scholarship um, or Lutheran scholarship, so to know what's going on within Lutheran circles, although there have been some very fine pieces of work, and I mentioned Bob Kolb earlier and others like him who have written, um, not uh, reaffirming actually, uh, what Luther did say about Scripture and distancing themselves from the Neo-Bartian kind of uh, reading of, of Luther that had been prevalent in the mid-20th century. Um, but still, uh, a, there is a very strong resistance to identifying the Bible as the Word of God. And uh, that is still prevalent, not just in Lutheran studies, but in uh, in wider theology, it seems to me. So, Evangelical uh, systematic theology, on the whole, will identify the Bible as the Word of God. Uh, there still is a very great deal of scholarship that just holds back from that. And some very good pieces of work in every other respect hold back from that identification at the final, uh, at the final step. And you wonder why. And I think it's under the, the power of that enormous presence of somebody like Karl Barth saying, Really, God reveals himself. He doesn't reveal propositions, which to me seems as if it's a false dichotomy. We come to know people as we know things about them. Those two things aren't in competition with one another. Um, but that that great insistence that God's self-revelation is his revelation. So only really Jesus Christ is the revelation. And the Bible is a witness to that. Um that still continues to echo in many systematic theologies that I read. We've been talking to Mark Thompson about Scripture and its clarity, but let's take a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students equipping them to serve the church 
in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We're back from our break and we're going to jump back into our conversation with Mark Thompson on the nature of scripture, hermeneutics, uh, the clarity of scripture, and much more. Now, as we talk about Luther, uh, we could also talk about the clarity of Scripture. We've been talking about whether the Bible is the Word of God, but we could also talk about whether the Word of God is clear. Uh, does it? Is it uh, intrinsically uh, clear in its message, in the way that God has communicated and, and meant for it to be understood? Uh, today, uh, and we could, I mean, you think, for example, of uh, Luther's debate with Erasmus, in which he wrote that famous book, The Bondage of the Will. Uh, much of that debate is about free will and the nature of grace. But uh, at the beginning, Luther addresses the clarity of Scripture because there are some presuppositions Erasmus is bringing to the table that Luther can't agree to. And, and so he, Luther then turns to uh, the distinctions like internal and external clarity. Today, though, debates in hermeneutics present uh, serious challenges to the perspicuity of Scripture. Uh, in what ways do you think, especially as you teach students or you see students go out and, and pastor uh, different churches, uh, are you seeing students or pastors tempted to abandon uh, clarity today? Well, let me take you back a step to the Luther-Erasmus thing. One of the things that's interesting in that debate uh, between his diet, uh, Erasmus's diatribe on the freedom of the will and Luther's the bondage of the will is uh, that Erasmus was arguing you can't be as confident as you are, Luther. You can't make assertions uh, in the way that you're making theological assertions because that's not the way the Bible works. It's not that clear we need the um, the support and advice of the, the church and those sorts of things. And in contrast to that, Luther says, no, the Bible is clear. Uh, and the same spirit who caused the words to make sense on the page and therefore to be objectively externally clear uh, is the one who illumines the human heart and enables the scriptures to be internally clear to the believer. So uh, th that was a very interesting part of my um, my research uh, when I was doing my doctorate was to think about that and to think about what Luther was saying, that clarity has this both external and internal um, uh, dimension. So the external dimension, the Bible actually makes, the words make sense on the page. It's not gobbledygook. It's not nonsense. Um, the, the words are clear. He would say, you know, even the uneducated could read this, although he would say it in a slightly more colourful way. Um, and yet the same spirit who caused it to be written is needed to make it alive in the heart, human heart because our hearts are so rebellious, our wills are so rebellious, we won't surrender to the word of God, we won't repent and allow our minds to be changed as well as our lives to be changed by the Word of God. And so what we need is that work of the Spirit within us as well. And that's what he calls the internal clarity of, uh, of Scripture. 
Uh, today, though, um, I, again and again, I hear people saying that uh, uh, it, it's a nonsense. I had somebody laugh at me once. Oh, you wrote a book on the clarity of Scripture, and they laughed. I thought, well, actually, uh, what you're doing here, there's several mistakes you're making. One mistake is to confuse clarity with simplicity. Mm. Uh, nobody who has uh, affirmed the clarity of Scripture that I know of has equated that with simplicity. There are difficult parts in the Bible. The Apostle Peter says there are parts in Paul that are hard to understand, which is a great comfort to some of us who've read Paul and thought it was hard to understand. If even Peter thought it was hard, that's okay. That's right. But he says hard to understand. He doesn't say impossible to understand. And what's more, in that same part, Peter says, well, people twist what Paul says, which you wouldn't be able to even say if it was not possible to access what Paul really did say. So uh, I think People have confused simplicity and uh, clarity. And another mistake that is made is because there is a diversity of opinion amongst Christians, uh, people have said, well, that is evidence that the Bible's not clear. We said a moment ago about Luther and uh, Erasmus that uh, their context, their historical context, uh, shaped uh, what, they, uh, what they were doing, just as Barth's uh, historical context in the 1930s helped to shape uh, what he was saying, and and ours does. If, if people like Bart could make mistakes, we can make mistakes as well. We're just blind to the historical and cultural mistakes we're making as we as we look at the scriptures. Um, the the diversity is not necessarily a result of ambiguity or a lack of clarity in the scriptures. There's a whole range of other factors that come to play. Uh, how I've been shaped by my background, what my personal preferences are. My sinfulness, my ignorance, I may not know um, as much of the Bible uh, as someone else, and so I make a conclusion that's really quite premature. So it's not so much an issue with the text as it is with the readers of the text. How do I think people abandon clarity today or attempted to abandon clarity today? Uh, one of them is for the sake of avoiding conflict in what's a very conflict-laden context in which we find ourselves, uh, a lack of clarity can be a kind of retreat. It can be a way of saying, well, I'm, I'm not really sure, and we can't be sure, so let's just live together. And let's uh, resist the temptation to try and argue it out and find out what God is actually saying here and settle on an issue. Let's just agree to disagree. And that temptation is very strong. Um, America has given Australia so many great things, but because of the strength of American culture and thanks to multimedia and the internet and all sorts of other things, uh, the same pressures of unbelief that you are experiencing in America are being experienced here in Australia. Mm. Um, our parliament is just this very day debating laws to restrict religious freedom. Um, and uh, in that kind of context, uh, it's easy to back off and say, I'm not going to be as definite. I'm going to uh, say, well, of course, it could mean one thing or the other, and we can agree to live together. Another way in which I think that happens is that people uh, appeal to uh, extra-biblical history to transform what's actually written in the text. Uh, in another context... I, um, I have been talking about marriage and uh, relations of men and women. Uh, and 
uh, a response article has uh, very strongly asserted that this is what was going on in Paul's mind and this is what was going on in Paul's world so that what he wrote in Romans and 1 Timothy and other places um, is not actually what he meant. Or another article was saying, well, Paul was constrained by the limits of his finitude. Of course he could only say that because he only knew this much, forgetting, of course, that the Bible is also the word of God and uh, that God is communicating through his agent, the Apostle Paul, but leave that aside for a moment. But this appeal to something outside of the text, which raises questions about whether the text really is intelligible on its own terms, is uh, what I see some scholars doing uh, on the ground uh, uh, in the churches, the retreat into a, um, an, in, uh, an ambiguity that allows us to live with people who disagree with us. So they're, they're two p- particular temptations, I think, our students face as they walk out of uh, our college and face life and ministry in the world. And Mark, would you also say, would you agree with me, because I have found this to be true in the American setting, I don't know if you've found this to be true in in your own setting in Australia, Is and it's this, it, when we see those who are making these type of arguments, I have often found that the doctrine of Scripture that they're operating with is largely indebted to the type of doctrine of God that they have they have adopted. Mm. Uh, and when we're talking about the clarity of Scripture, uh, would you would you go that next step and then also say, well, the clarity of Scripture that's ultimately a, a God issue. It's ultimately grounded in the very character of God. Well, yes, uh, that is one of the major lines of argument in the book, the uh, A Clear and Present Word that in the end, what you say about Scripture has very significant consequences for what you say about God. Uh, Most of the time, our communication, our interpersonal communication, be it um, oral or whether it's written, uh, succeeds. We are able to communicate with each other. You're understanding what I'm saying now. Uh, When you write uh, some of the uh, wonderful things that you've written over the last few years, Uh, people understand what you've written. And that happens most of the time. I leave a note for my wife on the dining room table and um, I don't have to worry that she'll misunderstand what I'm saying. She understands what I say most of the time, almost all the time. Uh, And that's true in all sorts of other contexts for us. If that's true of us, how much more God? Why is it that we can effectively communicate and God, who is the most effective communicator of all, why could he not um, effectively communicate? communicate. Um, I did this, this was the train of thinking that that shaped so much of what I wanted to do in a clear and present word. And then years later, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Mike Ovey, uh, who used to be the principal of um, Oak Hill College in London, pointed me to a guy, Benedict Pictet, Pictet who's a, uh, who was a uh, Genevan theologian at the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century. And he said very much the same thing. Um, when you say the Bible is not clear, either God could not reveal himself more clearly or he would not. And if he could not, then you're saying something about God's omnipotence and omniscience and you reconstruct the doctrine of God that way. If you say he would not, 
then you raise questions about his benevolence, love and mercy, and you reconstruct the doctrine of God that way. Uh, in his words, no one will assert the former that God could not um, speak clearly. And to say the latter is most absurd for who could believe that God, our heavenly father, has been unwilling to reveal his will to his children. So what you say about the Bible, since the Bible is the word of God, what you say about the Bible has important consequences for what you say about God and your doctrine of God and his capacity to effectively communicate with his creatures uh, is at stake. After all, God's the first person to use human language to address Adam and Eve. I assumed that that had to be human language for them to understand. And not only could they understand what God said, but they could share what God said with each other. And even Eve is able to share it with the serpent and to say what God said uh, with her own little distortion of it, of course. But uh, if God is the first person to use human language, if God is the person who actually makes the transition from oral speaking to written speaking, he gives Moses the tablets that are, have the written words to God's people. If God is the one who makes that transition and he is present with his word, not um, absent from it, then again, what you say about the Bible um, has significant implications for what you say about God. If it's not true, then God is either deceiving us um, or he's he doesn't know enough or He's caught by surprise by the modern sophistication of 21st century uh, men and women. Uh, you're saying ridiculous things about God once you say the Bible is not true. You say the Bible is not clear. You end up saying things about God that recraft your doctrine about uh, doctrine of God. The same is true if you deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Mark, these are are crucial crucial connections that you're making, whether it's clarity or sufficiency or you uh, inerrancy or inspiration itself, uh, this is mm. a, a reminder that in, in all these attributes of Scripture, uh, we can't look at these as in a, a very modern scientific way. We need to understand them in the biblical context in which uh, the biblical authors very clearly understand that the Word of God is the Word of God, uh, that this is God himself speaking, and so to sever that connection uh, would, would be unthinkable in their own minds, though it is very a very popular move in our modern day, unfortunately. Now, Mark— Yes, and I think, you'd, I think what you want to say as well um, is we've got to think about— reading the Bible. Um, hermeneutics is a great aid, but it's a dreadful master. Um, and we create these sort of hermeneutical structures now that make reading seem or reading the Bible seem almost impossible. I've got to obey all these hermeneutical canons and make sure I get all of this right. Whereas, as I say, most of our human interpersonal communication is effective um, all the time with those who can read. So um, I'm not against hermeneutics, but I think it can be overblown. But what we've got to be careful about is that our discussion of hermeneutics, as well as our discussion of Scripture, is theological in its shape. It's determined by who God is, first and foremost, rather than taking external and, and frankly, um, atheological descriptions of the reading task and the nature of text and imposing them upon the Bible. The nature of this text is that it's God's word. The nature of how you read this text 
is you read it as somebody who comes to hear God address you and who is willing to be changed and to repent in the light of God's word. I found over the years one of the really helpful um, old, old, old sermons uh, on this topic has been the first homily of Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was burned at the stake for his faith um, in the 16th century. And Thomas Cramner wrote one on a a fruitful exhortation to the reading and knowledge of Holy Scripture. And in that sermon, he talks about the stance of the Christian before the word of God, wanting to learn the truth, humble and willing to be changed, not trying to say more than God has said, being willing to learn from others. All those things are there. And, and, and they are not, they're not special things that somehow uh, need to, you need to create some massive hermeneutical structure around. They are just the life of discipleship, one wanting to hear our Heavenly Father speak to us and want him to, wanting to be directed by him rather than us directing him. Well, Mark, when we talk about uh, each of these attributes of script, of Scripture and their importance for today, you clearly are are ministering uh, in the Australian context, uh, given your leadership of more theological college. And you've already shared with us uh, some of the ways that... Uh, there's challenges there that are similar to the challenges we face here, uh, and uh, some of the work that's being done um, at, at the uh, in, in the seminaries uh, that uh, on, on both sides of the ocean. Uh, and on your side, of course, that means uh, the Diocese of, of Sydney in the Anglican Church of Australia. Uh, and, and so I hope uh, some of our listeners uh, who are on your side will uh, certainly join you in, in, in uh, both attending uh, your college to understand some of uh, what you've said about the doctrine of Scripture. But uh, you clearly, as a, as a leader of more college, are indebted to those who have come before you. And so as we close, I can't help but, but think of uh, a, a figure like uh, Peter Jensen. Uh, formal, formal, uh, former principal, that is, of Moore College. Uh, he's been a major influence uh, in your own life. What, what is it about uh, Peter's scholarship, even his friendship toward you, that has been uh, so instructive over the years? And uh, his, are, are there ways that Peter has even uh, helped you in your own vision and leadership at Moore? Uh, well, Peter was uh, the principal, two principals before me of Moore College, uh, and then after that, the Archbishop of Sydney. And I've known Peter as a teacher. He's been a teacher, was a teacher of mine, known him as a colleague on the Moore College faculty, uh, known him as a friend and uh, as an archbishop. And it's Peter's integrity and his single-mindedness when it comes to the mission of the Lord Jesus that people need to know Jesus, that people are lost without Jesus. And all our scholarship and everything we are doing is about seeing lost people come to know Jesus. Then we want to have a rigorous theological education as we have at Moore College to prepare people thoroughly so they'll spend a lifetime telling people about Jesus and others will come to know him. So it's that that gospel mission focus of Peter uh, that has been a great encouragement. The warm pastoral heart as well. 
uh, uh, there are there are a number of anecdotes I could share about the way in which Peter has sacrificially and generously given of himself uh, to people, and that's been wonderful. I was at a meeting in in London a couple of years ago. Uh, where there are a whole group of Anglican bishops who want to sit under the word of God, but are suffering under the Episcopal Church of America and other places. And uh, they were saying, uh, you know, when I was struggling most, when people were threatening most, nobody stood beside me except him Mm. and pointed at Peter. And it's that kind of generous pastoral heart. But as well as all of that, his courage. Uh, He has been uh, a target of abuse and uh, he has been pilloried in the press and in other places, but he has been single-minded and wanting to stand under the word of God to see people come to know Jesus uh, and to be generously uh, warm and loving as Jesus has been to us. And, and all of that, if I could be a part of that, um, I'd be really thrilled. Well, Mark, I, I am... Uh, indebted to Peter's scholarship. Uh, he, he has been uh, an individual who's been so productive, and uh, countless pastors have benefited from his writings. But as you have shared with us, it's not just his writings, is it? It's, it's also uh, the way that he has served, uh, and, and what a, the, how helpful that is to our li- for our listeners to hear. Perhaps uh, you're a, a pastor in the local church or, or maybe working in some parachurch organization or maybe uh, at a, a college or seminary yourself. Uh, the, the, what Mark here has shared about Peter, the type of uh, humility to I- I endure sometimes such uh, abuse, but at the at, at the same time, uh, the courage, the boldness to uh, encourage others to stand for the gospel when others are challenging it or abandoning the gospel itself. Uh, we've been talking with Mark Thompson, who is the principal of Moore College, Moore Theological College, and uh, the author of books like uh, A Clear and Present Word. I would encourage our listeners to uh, pick up some of his writings. You can also follow him online on his personal website where he blogs and uh, doesn't just write on Scripture, but a whole range of issues, uh, some of which we've touched here, and addresses how theology, uh, whether it's biblical theology or systematic theology, uh, how it is applicable and relevant to many of the pressing challenges, not just in Australia, but around the world and in America as well. Mark, it's been such fun. Uh, what a delight to have you on the Credo Podcast. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's been my delight. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.